Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Please do keep your your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 6. I wonder what comes into your mind when you think about Noah and the ark. Noah and the ark. It is one of the best-known Bible stories. It's a favorite of Sunday school teachers and creche leaders and creche curricula, and even of secular toy manufacturers. It's possible to get toys and puppets based on the ark. You can get one, I'm sure, with different animals, puppets on each finger. It's also the subject of many twee songs. Who built the ark? Noah, Noah, who built the ark? Father Noah built the ark. The animals went in two by two. Hurrah, hurrah. <laughs> the elephant and the kangaroo. Hurrah, hurrah. More recently, it was a Darinovsky epic film, Darren, Aaron, Darren Aronofsky epic film starring Russell Crowe as Noah that brought the Ark and Noah back into popular consciousness and featured all sorts of weird and wonderful things that had nothing at all to do with the biblical account. But is that it? Is that what this story is meant for? Light entertainment for preschoolers to learn the names of different animals and a seedbed of fantastic stories. It's just not credible. It seems like a childish fable which, in the words of Morrissey, says nothing to me about my life. And if we try and get a bit more serious, we find that the account of the flood raises big scientific questions. For many people in our culture, such questions undermine the credibility of the Bible from the start. And therefore, they undermine the potential for really believing in Jesus and having biblical faith. Those concerns must be taken very seriously. And actually, the Bible takes Noah very seriously indeed. Here's a couple of examples from the New Testament. Hebrews says that Noah is an example of faith who should be imitated. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. The Apostle Peter said that the flood was a warning to everybody to turn from their sin and repent. This is what he said. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But, says Peter, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word of God, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come 
to repentance. So according to Peter, the flood is a big uh, signpost. It's the poster child saying, let's come to repentance before it's too late. And even our Lord Jesus himself talked about Noah and the flood. He said it's a lesson to get ready. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That's Jesus' way of talking about himself. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Strong words from Jesus. He says, learn the lesson of those people who were just living life as if God would never intervene in their world. But he did, and they were swept away. So does this text have anything to say to me about my life? Does it matter in the world of Remembrance Day when we remember the death of millions of people and the cruel oppression of the many by the few in power? It does. Does it have anything to say to the world of the last week where the American people made a choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? One candidate who would most likely have made life a lot less safe for the unborn, and the other candidate who is setting back the clock on racial reconciliation by decades and talking about building a wall between the states and Mexico and making the Mexicans pay for it. In fact, when properly understood, the flood and Noah is a a story, a text designed to bring us to our senses. There is nothing sentimental about this. When properly understood, it will have to be re-rated from a U or a PG to a 12 plus. And our creche leaders, Lucy and Nicole, will have to review its inclusion in the teaching rotor for the under fives. Because we may find, as we study today, that the flood has been watered down. But understanding Noah and the flood will help Christian believers to follow Jesus and live faithful lives in our generation. And it should provoke all of us, no matter where you are today spiritually, it should provoke all of us to take refuge from the wrath of God in the ark, in the place of safety that God has graciously made available to us. I think there are three hearts in our text today. There's the heart of darkness, the heart of God, and the heart of faith. The heart of darkness, the heart of God, and the heart of faith. Firstly, the heart of darkness. In 1899, the Polish-British writer Joseph Conrad published a story called The Heart of Darkness. If you haven't read it, you may have come across the film Apocalypse Now, which was based on this story, uh, but read into uh, the Vietnam War. Now, in the story, a colonial agent called Mr. Kurtz is given the freedom by the company to go up the Congo River in search of ivory. And Kurtz is a brilliant businessman with a great mind and a great education and a powerful personality. But something happens to him in the Congo. He's corrupted by greed and by power. And he sets himself up as a kind of demigod. He treats the native people as instruments to be used and discarded. At one point, he's writing a note on an official report about the Congo, and he uses the phrase, exterminate the brutes, about the native people. Exterminate the brutes. Now, the book's narrator 
Marlowe, becomes obsessed with Kurtz. He wants to meet him and discover what he's like. And he travels up the river, and there he finds Kurtz trapped in this kind of sick paradise that he's created and dying of illness. And his last words, as he looks into his own heart and thinks about the things that he's done, are the horror, the horror. He's speaking about his own soul. The horror, the heart of darkness. And, and Conrad was saying, that heart of darkness which you Western people, late 19th century, think is all about Africa, is exactly the same back in your so-called civilized world. Look at the world of Noah, chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Look at that again. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Skip down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now this is the human heart. This is the Bible's diagnosis of you and I, our condition by nature, and adding on top of that some nurture as well. But by nature, our inclination of the thoughts of our heart is evil all the time. It's not that we're born a kind of blank slate or born good. We're not born free. We have this kind of heart. And we develop it through various ways in our crooked way through life. Now this heart is what leads, it's like the last straw that leads to God reaching this conclusion in verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was truly was deeply troubled. What a terrible verdict. God regretted that he'd made us. Now, what is the key problem here? It's very interesting in this chapter. It seems to flow from the leaders, from the rulers of the people, and the power that they have to corrupt society. Have a look at the beginning of the uh, chapter there. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Now, this is a, a strange verse and it has generated a lot of debate over the years. Some people have concluded that these sons of God are angels and that angelic beings cross a boundary that should never be crossed and have sex with human women. And that as a result of that sort of hybrid and angel-human types start being born on the earth, and God says, enough's enough, you know, <laughs> I don't want this to happen. Now, the, the reason why people think that is that the phrase sons of God occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament about three times to mean angels. So in other places, it does mean angelic beings. But we, 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 we interpret text by the, the context, not necessarily by the dictionary. Is it plausible in this passage that these are actually angelic beings sleeping with women? Now, uh, 
Nowhere else in the Bible is this kind of activity mentioned. And Jesus himself talked about uh, angelic beings as being non-sexual. He said that in the world to come, there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage because we will be like the angels who, who never marry. The ancient world of this time didn't have a category of gods or angels somehow sleeping with humans. That comes in much later with the Greek world. So the idea that this is a boundary crossing from the spiritual world into the physical one is full of problems. I think it's more likely that the phrase sons of God should have quotation marks around it. There are no quotation marks in the Hebrew language, but we could put some in. So we'd read it like this. The sons of God saw the daughters of men and they married any of them they chose. These are self-styled sons of God. And there's a very, very old tradition that understands these to be human rulers, kings, self-styled, God-like people. They are the rulers and kings of the ancient world who claim divine right over everybody under their power, and they make themselves accountable to no one but themselves. One example of this is a man called King Carrot. King Carrot sounds like a very big vegetable. He was from a, pa a place called Ugarit, and in the tablets they've discovered that are now kept in Syria, he described himself as a son of the gods. Even the pharaohs did this. They talked about being the son of the god Ray. And of course, Moses, the writer of Genesis, and the Hebrew people knew all about pharaohs calling themselves gods and where that leads. In other words, these sons of God are rulers who set themselves up as gods in the world and they are accountable to no one else. They take on themselves a self-flattering name to pretend that they have some direct line to heaven. And this idolatrous arrogance meant that they were accountable to no one but themselves. They could make their own rules. They could use other people to serve themselves. And that is completely in line with another big theme we've been finding in the book of Genesis as we've read through it together. Think back to chapter 3. What is the great temptation presented to Eve? It's the desire to be like God, knowing good and evil, to make your own rules, to be God. And where does it ultimately lead by chapter 6? It leads us to corruption and violence. There's a direct challenge here to two good and beautiful things that God has made, the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of human life. The sanctity of marriage. These so-called sons of God see the daughters of human, humans were beautiful. Now the language there is very interesting because the word that's translated beautiful is normally translated good. They see that they are good. Now who sees that things are good back in Genesis chapter 1? Can you remember? It's God himself. It's God who sees what's good. That means he determines it. He is the one who, who assesses and judges rightly. But when these rulers see that the daughters are good, they marry any of them they choose. So there's at least a kind of taking people in marriage, probably polygamy going on here, and, and a breaking of God's laws 
Also then it leads into the breaking the sanctity of life because the world becomes full of violence, full of violence and corrupt in every way. Now what do those two things have in common? Sexual immorality and violence. They both see other people as objects to be used, not as image bearers to be served. They both see other people as objects to be used, not image bearers to be served. These sons of God, so-called, were rich, powerful men who took what they wanted when they wanted it. But what is the effect on society if our rulers are corrupt and oppressive? One scholar called John Walton reflects that there can be two outcomes in society when rulers are corrupt and oppressive. The first is that there's a double standard, and the second is an erosion in the moral fiber of a culture. Double standards. When government officials, politicians, prime ministers, presidents say one thing in public but do something very different in private, we're aware of their hypocrisy. Society begins to disintegrate because we know they say that. They demand that standard of other people. They're saying that in public, but in private they do things that are very different. There's an erosion, too, of the moral fiber of a society. Two really notable examples were the South African program of apartheid and the Holocaust brought on by the Nazis. In South Africa, the relationships between the Dutch settlers and the native African population had always been strained. But in the 1960s, grand apartheid became government policy and it mandated separation of territory and police repression. The government institutionalized racism. The dehumanization of the black population included denationalizing them as they were corralled into the most unproductive parts of the country and made citizens of the homelands rather than citizens of South Africa. People were classified into groups, white, black, and colored. And that was used as an instrument of oppression as the black and colored people were required to carry passes and forbidden even to protest against the laws under threat of severe punishment. Local officials, private citizens started to get involved in this. Even low-level police officials could detain somebody without a hearing for up to six months. And it was not unusual for such people to then die in custody with evidence suggesting they had been tortured. For those cases that made it to trial, Sentences often doomed the offenders to death, banishment, or imprisonment for life. A large percentage of the Dutch population adopted and participated in the government's policies. Now, were those Dutch settlers, or were the German people under Hitler, worse than the rest of us? Were they somehow an aberration and the rest of us are actually quite decent? No. The human heart is a heart of darkness and leadership policy and leadership behavior provides an indication of what's acceptable in the group. Now this works with different kind of organizations. Uh, churches. If the leaders of a church are bullies, and this happens, bullying leaders spread a culture of fear and oppression throughout the whole church community. 
Government officials, civil servants, others who are corrupt, financially corrupt, and on the take. It spreads through. Bribery and corruption spreads through a whole system until everyone is affected by it. Sexually immoral rulers or royalty or leaders set an example that then is imitated by others because they know that's acceptable now. And of course, there's celebrities and the impact that they have on culture. Where does it all lead? To the moral sewer. To the moral sewer. And eventually, in Genesis 6, God says, enough. Now, friends, we find it all too easy to see the sins and failings of other people, especially those who are in the public eye, don't we? It's easy to throw stones at them. But Jesus warned of being like a person with a plank sticking out of his own eye, pointing out the speck in the other person's eye. So let me ask you a question. If this heart of darkness is seen in how we treat our fellow men and women, whether we use them or serve them, have you looked at your own heart recently? And I say your, your heart, not necessarily behavior, because some of us are trained to be very, very good and polite and nice, at least at the level of behavior. What about the heart? Do you see other people as things to be used, as means to an end, for self-promotion or self-pleasing? Or do you see them as image bearers to be served? Now, one key indicator of what your heart really thinks is how you respond when, when someone gets in your way, when someone blocks your goals or lets you down. Are you rude, impatient, dismissive, and contemptuous when that happens? What about uh, somebody who cuts across your car and do you experience road rage? What's going on in the heart? Another key indicator is how you treat people who are of low social status or, or uh, addicts or homeless, people who have no use to you. How do you respond to them? Another key indicator is how your heart really thinks about sex. Do you objectify people? You see them as objects whose body parts are to be appraised, criticized, or lusted after. Is, is your mind pornified? Do you think sex is basically about gaining pleasure for you or about serving another person in marriage? Hearts of darkness. Now, the big lesson from Noah is that the Creator God will not allow this kind of thing to go on forever. Here we find some things about God and about God's character that many people have struggled to deal with. Liberal people have struggled with the idea of God judging. Devastating judgment here. And conservative people have struggled with the idea that God is emotionally involved. He regrets what he's done. He's grieved. Yet both these things are in our text. And we've got to know the true God. As he reveals himself in his word, if our lives are to be properly rooted in his reality. So we move from hearts of darkness to the heart of God. Read with me again chapter 6. Verse 7 and 8. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created 
and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. God sees. Nothing escapes his gaze. God feels. Verse 6 is his language of regretting. Or in the old, one of the old versions, he repented for what he'd done. We could even maybe speak here of a broken heart. Deeply grieved. This is not a cool, distant, arm's length God, imagined by the deists, the divine watchmaker who set the world up, wound it up, and left it ticking. This God is involved. He's there at ground level. He's personal. He has emotions. He's not ruled by them. He's not unpredictable and kind of flying off the handle, but he does care deeply. And here he is grieved and pained. He's pained. He's troubled. Now, some people have taken these texts and said, you know what? God didn't really know what was going to happen next. He's so involved. God's kind of in the world that he's created and hoping it's going to work out differently. And it's led them to a position called open theism. Open theism basically is the idea that God exists, but God's not really in control. Anything can happen. Now, our God is truly and completely sovereign. The whole Bible speaks of him in such a way. But he is also involved. He's deeply committed. He cares about what happens to his creation. So why did he allow all this to happen? One of the biggest barriers to, to, to many people coming to faith is the idea that if God is God, then he can't be good because he's allowed suffering into the world. But if God is good, then surely he's not that powerful because surely he would stop it. And here we're touching a mystery Something that we haven't got the full answer to. But we can say this. God created human beings with free will and responsibility and gave us meaningful choices. God did not make robots made out of meat who just did his bidding and kind of obeyed whatever he said without thought. God gave meaningful choices and therefore he allows the possibility of evil into his world. Our moral choices have real consequences. God sees everything. He even sees the depths of our own hearts. And God judges. Here we have some of the greatest warnings that the Bible could make. The flood came to destroy humanity. It's a massive signpost to ask us to look at our lives and be honest with ourselves. If God looked into my heart, how would he feel about it? And the Bible is unapologetic in teaching that God decided to wipe the human race from the face of the earth with a lot of animals too. God did it. Verse 17, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. So here we see the heart of God. Passionate, involved, Holy, incorruptible, righteous. He must judge. He gives lots of time, but he must judge. And Peter, the apostle, says, don't forget this. He wants you to repent. Don't forget his kindness and waiting, his patience. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to turn to him. Come back to him before it's too late. 
Now, I just want to deal a little sidebar for a moment. How, does the Bible uh, tell us clearly about the date of the flood and the extent of it? This is a big barrier to faith for some people. I want to talk to you now, especially if it's an area that you struggle with. How do we understand this? Flood. For many years, I believed that the flood was global in the sense that it, water covered the surface of the entire world to a distance of more than six meters above the highest mountain. That's actually what one reading of the text leads you to. I believed that the whole world was covered in water and that Noah's ark floated around on it for 150 days and eventually came to rest on top of a mountain. Eventually I started thinking, you know, I'm not a hydrologist, but I did occasionally wonder where did all the water go? Then I moved to Manchester and I found out where it is. (laughs) Now, it is possible that God, who rules all things, could produce that much water, that much more than the oceans which are already there, many, many times more to cover the world with that, and then he could miraculously remove all that water, leaving the oceans as we know them, and remove evidence of the global flood as well. But is that what the Bible intends us to believe In this section, notice that the main purpose of the flood is judgment on humanity, not the penguins. God is is concerned to wipe out humankind from the earth, not marsupials who may at that time have been living in Australia. Animals are harmed, but that's collateral damage. Now clearly the Bible intends us to believe that God destroyed the human race except for eight people at that time. But not necessarily that God destroyed all the fresh water as well, which would have happened because 97% of the water in the world is seawater. And if it all mingled together, where would the fresh water have come from? How would freshwater creatures have survived? You start to do the math up. Here's an interesting thing. The word in the Hebrew language translated earth can also be translated land. So when God says, I will destroy the earth... It could be translated as, I will destroy the land. Let me just turn with you if you want to look over at Genesis 41. Genesis chapter 41, which is page 46. We see the, same, the very same phrase used, uh, but translated differently. Genesis chapter 41, verse 56, says this, When the famine, this is in Joseph's time in Egypt, when the famine had spread over the whole country, same word as earth, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Now, does he mean that the Eskimos came to buy grain from Joseph in Egypt? Or does it mean that the famine was severe throughout the known world or a very large region? Just as we've talked earlier about the world world wars, World War I and II. Actually, not the whole world was involved in those two wars, but they were cataclysmic in their scale and scope. So, in this sense, the Bible clearly teaches that there was a, a 
a, a catastrophic, enormous flood that destroyed all humanity except eight people. But I don't think it necessarily commits us to the idea that the entire world was covered in water. And if that's something that's new to you or challenged to you, please come and chat to me afterwards. When was this flood? Well, some people have added up the genealogy of Noah and calculated going back that the flood must have occurred 2,400 years before Jesus Christ was born because that's what happens if you add up the genealogies. But I've pointed out last week that genealogies in, in the Bible, family trees, are often compressed. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's compressed. There are a lot more people in between. There's loads of evidence of this. So the suggestion that Noah uh, was around about 2400 BC isn't supported by the Bible genealogies as we know it. What about archaeology? Now, archaeologists have found evidence of, of major flooding in different parts of the world, but there's probably no one single find that could, could demonstrate this. I will show you a book, very interesting book by two uh, notable uh, geophysicists, oceanographers, William Ryan and Walter Pittman. They found evidence for a flood in the Black Sea, uh, the Turkey, uh, east side of Turkey region, uh, that, that they reckon in the year, about the year 7500 BC there was a flood of such an extent that the water level rose 500 feet in a matter of a few months and it devastated a vast area of the world, 7500 BC. Was that Noah's flood? We don't know. In fact, we don't need to know because the Bible isn't interested in just answering all of our scientific questions. It is interested in telling us that God... The loving creator, the holy one, is of such a character that at some point he must deal with sin. He must deal with rebellion. There was a devastating, catastrophic flood long ago in the ancient world. It destroyed the known world of that time. So what does that mean for you and me this week? The heart of darkness, the heart of God, and finally, the heart of faith. Noah is held up as an example of faith, someone to imitate. Now, just think about this. Noah lives in a kind of very dry area. He's surrounded by landlubbers. These aren't people who go yachting for, on holiday. They don't even like the sea. And there they are. They're basically farmers. And there's Noah spending years building an ark out of wood. This ark is absolutely enormous. It's far bigger than any boat that's ever been discovered in the ancient world. It's more than 400, it's 450 feet long. It's longer than a football pitch. It's wide, it's high, it has three decks, three-part structure. It's not actually designed to be a boat, it just has to float and keep lots of animals in it and some people. So much time goes into this thing. So much of his resources, so much of his energy in this wooden structure, 450 feet long. A temporary structure for protection against the judgment of God. Now, can you imagine the talk in the local pub? Have you heard what Noah's doing now? Unbelievable, that guy. Nutty Noah with his big boat and his big beard out in the desert. Think about the social implications for his kids. 
Now, Noah didn't have much to go on. He committed his entire life to this project, and he didn't have meteorological data. He just had God's word. God had told him that the flood was coming and to get ready, and he did. He lived by faith. He lived by that which was not seen. By faith, Noah built an ark. Well, what about you, Christian friends here? Are you walking by faith now? Are you making life choices consistently, day by day, in line with God's word, rather than by what is seen? Even when those decisions are costly to you, even when they are embarrassing to you and reduce your social status, will you walk faithfully with your God, as Noah did in his day and generation, even though it might make you a laughingstock? Will you do everything just as God commanded, which Noah did? Let me ask you, is there an area in your life right now that needs to be submitted to God because you're not walking by faith in it? You're walking by sight. Do it now. Do it now. We need to hear the lesson of this flood and turn to God to live faithfully. He is patient, but his patience, his kindness, is there to lead you to repentance. We also, and I say this in closing, need to go into the ark. We need to go into the ark. And I don't mean a boat. This ark is a very curious thing. It, uh, it was big. It has the same kind of shape as a temple. It has the same kind of three-part structure. And it also has animals in it which are distinguished by clean and unclean. And it is a place of life. In other words, Noah's ark was a floating sanctuary. It was a floating temple. That was the place of God's safety. There was safety in the ark. So where is our ark? Where is the ark for us now? It's not a boat. It's not a building. It's a person. Jesus Christ, who described himself as the temple and who was a sacrifice to take away sins. He is the safe place, the only one. He's the only refuge in the storm. And he will be the only safe place when judgment comes. Notice that you don't earn your place uh, in, in this ark. It comes from God's favor. We've sung it earlier, I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. We know the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ who experienced the flood for us, the flood of God's anger. He was wiped away from the face of the earth. Jesus was destroyed. He endured the anger of a holy God so that a countless number of people could be saved through him. And so he is our ark, our refuge, where we go with our hearts of darkness and find them changed to hearts of light, where we see the heart of God that behind a frowning countenance is full of love even for wicked people and where we find how to live lives that please that God and walk faithfully with him in our generation. Let's pray and pray that we would do that this week. 
Our Heavenly Father, we tend to live life in our fairly safe Western democracy. Most of us pretty affluent among people who are generally quite well behaved and we're sometimes blinded to spiritual reality. We can be blinded to the fact that this world is wicked and it is heading for judgment and there is only one safe place. But we thank you that you have come to us in your scriptures and spoken plainly and clearly to us. You've, you've knelt down and whispered, almost lisped. You've condescended to us like children to tell us uh, of what we are like, but how we could be forgiven. And you sent your son, Jesus, to be our ark, our refuge. So, Father, we pray today, change us by the power of your word so that we would not be like those sons of God who think they're godlike and make their own rules, who use people, but that we would be like the Lord Jesus himself, who, though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and was obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. To him we come now, asking that you would remake us and fill our hearts with light and help us to remember him and to walk faithfully with you this week. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.